Hey everybody, Mike here, and you're probably wondering where the usual music and intro went today. Well, on this episode, we get a little bit more serious, so rather than start with music in our normal introduction, we wanted to take a moment to fill you in on a couple of things. First off, we're going to start with a trigger warning. On today's episode, we're talking with Adam Carr, Master Integrator at Save a Warrior and founder and CEO of The Western Zen. Save a Warrior focuses on suicide prevention for military veterans and first responders. So before you go on listening, know that we talk candidly with Adam about his experiences, and there are several stories focusing on suicide and depression throughout the episode. This episode contains description of suicide and violence that may not be suitable for younger audiences. During the show, we discuss Adam's experiences as a Green Beret and what it was like for him and many other veterans returning to civilian life. We also discuss how Save a Warrior is working to end the epidemic of suicide in our nation's veterans and first responders, as well as Adam's new leadership organization, The Western Zen. If you've experienced suicidal thoughts or lost someone to suicide, this episode may hit close to home. So please proceed with caution. If you're currently experiencing depression or suicidal thoughts, please know that there are people who love and care for you and that there are many avenues to get support or just someone to talk with. If you or someone you know is going through a difficult time, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you listen to this episode and you'd like to help support Save a Warrior, you can go to savewarrior.org backslash donate. That's savewarrior.org backslash donate. That's all I've got for today, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. We got Josh in the booth today. Josh, what's going on? Not much, dude. We got our snowstorm the other day, <laughs> since we always talk about weather when we open this uh, yeah, up. Yeah, apparently and, uh, that's all we know how to talk about at the beginning of a show is the weather. Yeah, well, I don't really like talking to you I'm too much I'm going to change the subject. So. <laughs> Wait, how long do you plan on keeping that mustache? Uh, my entire life. Your entire life? The people like it. Yeah. You want to introduce our guest? No, no, I want to keep talking about your mustache, <laughs> but uh, we will introduce our guest. So uh, today on the show, we're talking with Adam Carr, and Adam is the master integrator at Save a Warrior, an organization dedicated to ending the epidemic of suicide among our nation's military, veterans, and first responders. He is also the founder and CEO of The Western Zen, a leadership and development company based out of Columbus and focused on serving corporations, academia, and first responder agencies, prior to joining Save a Warrior and founding the Western Zen, Adam was a Green Beret serving the U.S. Army Special Forces from 2007 to 2014. We're excited to have Adam on the show to talk about Save a Warrior and everything they're doing to help the veteran community. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Adam. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, speaking about the weather, I love that banter in the beginning of this episode. And if you're from Ohio, that's really all you have to talk about is the weather because we get four seasons in a day. And yeah. I, know, I know you're from San Diego. You mentioned that as we were getting oh ready Oh my for God, this. he's from San Diego? Yeah. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Well, I think it's San Diego, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. San Diego. What is the... Um, Do you even know that that's a running joke on our podcast that I always say I'm from San Diego? No. There you go. See? That's mind-blowing. <laughs> that's how bad it is. It is. So here's a, here's a story I like to tell everybody. One time, I was we a guest came in and Mike was sitting here and the guy said, what's your name? Mike said, I'm, I'm from San Diego. My name is Mike. And he just he said that first. You're reason, and, you're, you're using jokes now. And, you know that, right? And, oh, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe that he... He, he got a good it. chuckle out of that one last time, so he likes to reuse it when we meet new people. Here's the thing. The fifth He's time, running out of material. The fifth time, it's going to become <laughs> funny again. So anyways, like going back to your story, you're, you are right, though. Ohio kind of frustrates me a little bit, mainly just from no scenery perspective. I was thinking the other day, like how much I like Columbus from the size of the city and the ability to get around and the people involved, but it does, it is kind of a bummer not being able to like look outside and see mountains or ocean or anything like that. Especially if you've been spoiled with that in the past. But I do love Ohio. I think what at least brought me back here because my last duty station when I was in the army was in Okinawa. So we could have kind of 
plotted and picked any place we wanted to go in the country. And my wife and I were looking at California and we were looking at Washington State and we're looking at Florida and, and some of these other desirable places that either have beaches or mountains or both. And what brought us back here was our family and friends. And there's some just incredible people we met over the years and being close to both her parents and my parents an hour away in Dayton has been great because we have children and grandparents want to see their grandkids. So were you born and raised in Central Ohio or where yeah, did you I was born? I was born in Dayton and ended up doing a undergrad at Ohio State. So that's what brought me to Columbus my first go around before I joined the military. And uh, I knew I wanted to come back and I wanted to be close to home, but not too close to home. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. So you went to Columbus and when you, when you went to Ohio state, right, were you planning on joining the army after that? Or did you have other plans before you enlisted? Did you enlist or were you an officer? I enlisted. So I worked for a living. That's a joke for any officers that are on here. <laughs> and, um, basically when I was in, I would have been a senior and I can remember just like anybody during that era, like watching the towers fall on TV, mm -hmm. you know, and I was doing a post-secondary education program at my high school. So I was going to University of Dayton for half the day and then was going to high school for half the day. And I was getting credit for both, which was awesome. But I came home and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, my pops is in the shower. He owned his own business. So he was home a lot. And watching those fall and knowing that we were going to go to war, you know, I, I wish I could sit here and say, man, I was the first one to go get in that recruiting office. Like, I'm going to go get some revenge. You know, I'm going to stand up and fight for my my country. But what it really came down to is I, I lost a scholarship to run at a university here in Ohio. And through that, I found myself in a recruiting office that summer uh, of my senior year once I graduated and ended up joining the National Guard. Because one, I, I knew I wanted to serve, but I also knew that I had to find a way to pay for school. And mm -hmm. I come from pretty humble beginnings, so there wasn't a huge college fund or anything waiting for me. And um, that's what got me involved in the military in the first place. So I joined the U.S. Army. My first commander was um, now a brigadier general, Congressman Stivers, right out of here in Columbus. He, he recently just, I think, went over to, I want to say he's in, in commerce now. So he had just recently left his congressional position, but that was my first commander. He was a lieutenant colonel at the time. Ended up transferring up to Ohio State. So I convinced a couple of my buddies that were not in the military to join the military. I said, it'll be great. You got to join this unit. You're not going to get deployed, yada, yada, yada. You're going to get your college paid for. So they all joined and we came up and got a house at Ohio State. And in my undergrad, I was going for business. You know, I, I knew I didn't come from a lot of money. So I figured, well, I'm going to go make a bunch of money. And that's going to be the solution, right? That'll, that's where all the dreams lies in the financial fortune. And something came across my screen at Ohio State's webpage when I was browsing one day and it said, new major announced security and intelligence. And it said for undergrads that want to go work for the CIA or the FBI. And within 15 minutes, I was on the phone with my guidance counselor. And I said, hey, I want to switch majors. Like, I don't want to be in finance anymore. I think I want to do this. And the rest is history. You know, I, they brought in all these former case officers from the CIA. They brought in uh, retired generals. They brought in linguists, you know, the language I had to select. So we had to select languages that were relevant to those three-letter agencies, you know, so Korean, Arabic, Chinese. I ended up selecting Arabic as my language. So took two years of Arabic at Ohio State. And then when I graduated with my undergrad, I ended up going active duty. And I had the option then to become an officer because I had a college degree. But this is how, this is really where my mindset was at at the time in 2006 when I graduated. I didn't want to miss the war. I thought, you know what? These wars are going to be over really soon. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be over in a couple of years. I don't want to miss the war. You know, I had matured in college and instead of being that 18 year old boy who was like hesitant to walk in the recruiting station, I now felt I was equipped to go out and do this. And, and what really made me want to go active duty is I saw those guys on the horseback 
overseas, you know, when those towers fell that first month, I saw those guys that were the Green Berets and they had, you know, they were dressed in all of the Afghan garb and they had linked up with tribal leaders. And I'm like, that's a, that's an incredible mission, you know, seeing what they were able, able to accomplish with a hundred other guys. And that was very inspiring to me. And I had a family member who's a cousin who was a Green Beret out in 10th group in Colorado. And I know he had gone through that training and that was another key inspiration for me. So that's what I ended up doing when I graduated is I signed a contract with the army for six years to go through a program that would basically take me on the path to become a Green Beret. Such a unique state of mind though, to sit back and say, I don't want this war to pass. Like I talk with Mike pretty frequently about this. When I got done with undergrad, I wanted to join primarily because I think it was a part of me that that was always like to jump to something where you know you can lose your life and do it for a lot of other people is something I think that scares me like far deep down. And to hear somebody else said that they they saw that and they had the option to say, I could try to make the war pass and I could have my college paid for and I could go on with my life. But you wanted to get in the thick of things. And so what was it? Did you just not have that fear? What was it about you or is it about you still as a person that made you want to jump in and, and be a part of that? Yeah, I think at the time at that age and, you know, one thing I've learned about in the space of doing this work with Save a Warrior in the past six years is I've learned a lot about the brain. And it, it's very, very interesting when you start really learning about the science behind all of our brains as human beings. And most people don't realize that our brains aren't even fully formed. Like the last thing that comes online in the front of our brain is the prefrontal cortex. That thing doesn't come online. That's our executive decision making. So that's what is responsible for really having us make these massive decisions like who am I going to marry? What am I going to choose for my career? I'm going to buy a house. Where am I going to live? Am I going to have children? It comes online at 25. But most people in this country, particularly those that get stuck in some type of a generational poverty, they're making major, major financial and life decisions prior to 25 prior to that decision-making coming online, but like nobody ever talks to us about that, right? So at that age, you know, you're talking 23 years old because I, I took a year basically in training when I first joined the Guard before I went to college. You know, I just, I felt called to it. I, I was like, I didn't have any fear around it. Going through that program, that security and intel program, I went from being a drunken college kid, you know, first time away from home in the sense that I was at a, a big university like Ohio State to getting straight A's and wanting to go to school and taking 21 credit hours a semester and saying, you know what, I'm going to do that in the summer too. Because I wasn't waking up and learning about some charts and diagrams. I, I was getting taught by a, a case officer, tradecraft, at a university. And it was exciting. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know they had things like this that exist. But Ohio State was one of the handful of, of colleges in this country that can handle a curriculum like that because we have the budget and we have, we're a very large university, one of the largest in the U.S., and we have the credentia to be able to handle such a program. And it was necessary. I mean, they needed good people to go and fill roles at these three-letter agencies. And the lines were out the door once those towers fell. I think there was a unification across this whole country for a brief moment in time where everybody wanted to, to chip in in some capacity. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So you finished up undergrad. Where do you get shipped off to at that point? So when I finished undergrad, let's see, I graduated in December of 06. 07, right off the gates, I'm off to infantry school. 
Now, I'd already been in the military for four and a half years, so I'd gone through basic training. Basic training is a rite of passage, boot camp, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's different for each branch. It's a rite of passage. It's basically an opportunity for the military to break you down as a human being, psychologically, physically, and then build you back up. So, you know, you get broken down, you're treated like absolute crap for the first few weeks, and then you get a little bit more leeway. And before you know it, you're a polished soldier and you're, you're, executing upon any command that you're given, you know, at least that's the idea. When I went back in, I was with a really good friend of mine and he had just gotten back from Iraq. So he was there for a year and we both show up at this office and the bus just so happened to drop us off at the wrong location. And so I'm, I'm a fresh college grad, you know, four and a half years in the military. My buddy had also been in four years, just got back from Iraq. When we sit down and we look at our paperwork, we're supposed to be inserted in week 10 of infantry school because the first nine and a half weeks are boot camp for the, the rest of the soldiers. And then there's the infantry school specific skills you're supposed to get. We got dropped off on day three and we ended up getting in this shouting match with this first sergeant and this colonel. Not a good idea <laughs> when you're both in E4, which is a, a low rank. And so they ended up inserting us in day three and took our phones, took all of our stuff and send us through boot camp all over again. It, it was a nightmare. I remember telling my friends this in the Q course and they were like, F that, I would have quit, I would have left. And I was like, there was a moment that I wanted to because I had to go through that whole experience again. Now, this is also during the height of the Iraq war, you're talking 06, 07. So there's a real big push for the US government to, to get bodies. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of sign-on bonuses and they're just trying to recruit as many kids as they can out of high school to send overseas um, as these divisions get plussed up. and we were in an overflow area, so they, they set up all these trailers to house us. And so we had all these drill sergeants that got activated from these National Guard units, and they're really big into UFC and MMA fighting because UFC is really big at the time. So every night they would pull everybody together and they would band all of our arms. So imagine a circle of you know 60 to 80 dudes in a trailer, and they would pick two random guys and make them bare knuckle box until one either bled out or got knocked out. And this was a nightly occurrence for those 10 weeks before the rest of the guys that were prior service like myself got inserted. And I'll never forget the day after 10 weeks of that, these dudes showing up that were where I was supposed to show up and, and seeing the looks on their faces and then being like, wait a second, you just went through basic training again? So I kind of had this psychological edge at that point because I'm like, there's if I just got through this, the most demoralizing, demeaning thing, I'm going to be okay. You know, because this, this is one of those situations that probably wasn't legal Certainly, if you were to look at the uh, UCMJ action against what could have happened with these guys. But, you know, that was my baptism by fire of going active duty. And so you finish that up and then you start going into the more of the infantry specific training. And how long does that last? Is that a series of weeks or months or years? No, infantry training is maybe four weeks after that. So I, all I had to do was go in for four weeks, but I got the whole 14. And then you go to airborne school after that. Mm -hmm. And then you go through, essentially, you get stationed at Fort Bragg and you wait to go to selection. And at the time, my selection was a 24-day selection. So three weeks and some change. And selection's where they really, you know, root who's going to, who they're going to invest two years in to train. Some guys take three years if they're going to be like a medic, which is called an 18 Delta. They have to invest some extra time in having them prepared to do, you know, potentially surgery on the battlefield. And at what point do you come to the decision of doing special forces or not? And how far into your career is that? So that was upon graduation. And I knew that I wanted to go work for the CIA or the FBI. And after talking to my cousin, who was already a Green Beret, he said, you know, you're already in the military. Um, a lot of people that end up going in those positions, they've either come out of the Ivy League institutions, because there's a lot of fraternal 
I don't want to say nepotism, but there's a lot of fraternal organizations that feed into those three-letter or- organizations. And the FBI, I mean, it helps if you have a law degree. And yeah, I wasn't ready to go get my graduate degree at the time. So for me, I, I figured on-the-ground experience is the best opportunity to not only go serve my country and, and get some combat time, but also set myself up for success in the future. And then, so at what point do you actually, you said 24 days, then you get shipped overseas. And where do you go to at that point? Oh no, 24 days is just the beginning. So let's see, 400 guys showed up to selection from all over the world, guys that were putting in their packet is what it's called. So these are guys from units like the 82nd Airborne, the 101st, you're talking about 10th Mountain Division, talking about the 25th Infantry, Rangers, you name it. So the the best infantry units and other units, it didn't have to be infantry, but it helps because you've been wearing a rucksack and your feet are ready and your mind's probably ready. But there were guys coming from all over the world because we have bases all over the world. So some folks are flying right in. Some folks are getting, that's their next duty station like myself because I was already in the States and I wasn't assigned to a unit. But out of those 400, by the last three days that they were making this selection process, 75% of them had quit or had been basically pulled out of the selection because they weren't meeting the standards, whether it was a run or a ruck or team events or whatever it is they had going on for us. So the the final day we had 100 guys and I don't want to give anything away because of all the non-disclosures and everything else we do, but 50 of us ended up getting selected. So 50 of us go in this room and there's this whole spiel and basically congratulations, you've been selected to start this arduous journey and this this 18 month to three year process, depending on your job and your language that you get. Some languages take longer. And then they said uh, afterwards, you're not shit, by the way. You know, you've welcome to the show, but you're just getting started. And, you know, another 75% of you won't make it through this process. So good luck. And that was kind of the spiel. And I don't blame them. I mean, you could call somebody like that a badge protector. It'd be no different than than going into a a corporate job somewhere where somebody's really, really excited and because they got the job. And it's like, listen, now is when the the real training starts because on the job training is one of those things that's invaluable. And it takes that long to make a soldier that's capable of being sent to some foreign country where you may be in an embassy briefing an ambassador from Yale who is reporting to the president on some geopolitical strategy on the ground as you've linked up with, you know, a unit there or you've responded to a hostage crisis in some foreign country. So they want to make sure they're getting the right guy to go do that job. How long are you in before you get out altogether? Six years and some change. So I ended up signing like an extension because of the location that I was at. It's one of those things that they'll offer basically throughout your whole contract. If you want to extend, you can, depending on where you're located. So I, I get through the training I'm really excited. I'm bragging all my friends as we got selected. Hey, you know, I, before I was a 31 uniform, with the, which is a signal system support specialist. Basically, I did things with radios and computers. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be an Echo. And 18 Echo is a guy that is in communications. So you're setting up satellites and computers and everything for the team. I figured that that's the job they would choose for me. They also analyze your test scores and all these things. And I chose for my language, you can put your top four things. And I thought I was being cute as like a wish list because there's all these different languages you can choose from. And I just put Russian, 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 Russian. Because I either wanted to be stationed in Colorado where the mountains are or in Stuttgart, Germany, which is the forward deployed battalion for 10th group. And they must have found that really funny because when they called my name, they said, Carr, um, you're a Charlie, which is an engineer and also the demolitions guy. So you get to handle all the IEDs and all that stuff. And Chinese is your language. So we ended up getting stationed out in Okinawa, Japan. And at this point, I had gotten married during the Q course. You know, all of our instructors told us, we we want you to avoid two things during this training. Don't go off and get married in a courthouse and don't go get tattoos. Those are the only two things they would ask us. And of course, first thing I did on, on pass 
when I had it because my then girlfriend at the time was flying back and forth to see me on all these different weekends I had. And eventually we're like, you know what? Let's go do a courthouse wedding. We won't tell anybody. We'll do a right wedding later, but let's just do this so we can move in together and live together. And this is pretty common in the military. Mm -hmm. But then we ended up getting pregnant. So I had to call everybody in my family and say, hey, guys, guess what? I'm married. And also, you know, you're going to be a grandma to my mom or you're going to be a grandpa to my dad. So as you can imagine, that was really fun to Went do. Went over very well with everybody. It's so fun as a 24-year-old to do that. Yeah, that's funny. My brother actually, uh, so I think they were planning it. So they were engaged, but they, right before, right before he went into boot camp, they got married because exactly that, right? Like she would, to get on the benefits and all that stuff, right? Live on base. Yeah. So very, very common in the military. Yes. So go to Okinawa, basically fast forward through those, that six year period constant deployments. You know, I, I go to first, the first, which is first battalion, first special forces group, which is the other four deployed battalion in special forces. So we have one in Stuttgart, Germany, one in Okinawa. Think that the, the PACOM commander, so the, the head honcho of all of the Pacific and all of the islands and Japan and Asia, you name it, something goes down, they're activating our unit because of the proximity for it. So that's why that we hold these forward deployed battalions out there. So we were gone all the time. You know, maybe I was in Australia, I was in the Philippines, I was living in Bangladesh, you know, Sri Lanka, you name it, Maldives. That was a wonderful trip. Afghanistan a couple of times. And so that starts to wear on you. And, you know, for me, it was all about having an opportunity to be deployed. You know, I didn't want to be hurt, didn't do a good job of, of tracking anything, you know, whether we're doing the craziest CrossFit workouts ever, or it's like, hey, we're going to run nine miles today, then we're going to go to the gym, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do powerlifting, and then we're going to do a CrossFit workout. It was either we were shooting, or we were working out, or we were planning for a mission. You know, when you're, when you're getting paid to do that, it's awesome, but it catches up with you, you know, putting that much weight on your body over the years and not taking the proper time to stretch and, and document all that stuff. What also wears on you is losing people. So my best friend, uh, a couple of weeks before he was gonna get out of the military, he was getting ready to come home from Afghanistan, took an AK-47 round at his neck, and I had to be the pallbearer, one of the pallbearers at his funeral. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, going down into his bedroom, he's a college football player down in Texas, and uh, everything was in his room the exact way it looked when he had left home. So his mother had kept all his trophies and everything out. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was just holding it together while I buried my friend. I also had a commander who was a commander of a, a SODIF, so a special operations task force, Job Price is his name, uh, who was also like a mentor to me and my team. You know, we worked with the SEALs. So Green Brays and SEALs, imagine a bunch of mud huts all over a territory and we're all linking together to try to like get this Afghan tribal groups to fly behind a common flag. We're setting up police forces and linking up in a liaison with the military. And th this gentleman's demons uh, unfortunately caught up with him. And a couple of days before Christmas in 2012, he, he blew his brains out. Um, I had another teammate. So when I say team, operational detachment alpha, it's a 12-man team. Another teammate who's best thinking instead of calling one of us and saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm dealing with some stuff, was to go get a, a hotel room and hang himself. You know, And so a lot of death, a lot of suicides. You know, right, right after the financial crisis, I had a family member of mine uh, step in front of a train. He paid his million-dollar insurance policy up to the day, wrote letters to everybody in the family, and then walked right out in front of a train. Very, very tragic. Again, one of those things where I wasn't able to make his funeral because I was in training and um, didn't get a chance to really properly grieve that one. Uh, another one of my guys who was a mentor of mine was getting ready to retire, went over for his last deployment, first mission out the wire, blown up by an ID. You know, and the stories go on and on and on. But what really, really hurt was one of my first friends I met when I was 18, 
So we're talking before the Ohio State years when I when I went in the army, killed himself on my birthday. He was a Wisconsin National Guardsman. So I was a very frustrated soldier when I transitioned. I thought, hey, I got it made. I got a degree from the Ohio State University, top secret clearance, worldwide experience, doing all these amazing things as a Green Beret. I'm gonna be okay when I get out. And that first six months were great. They were awesome. Like it was really great having the freedom, not feeling like uh, the army could just up and deploy me whenever they wanted. You know, that's a frustration for any service member because you're not telling the military no. Like they tell you you're going somewhere, you're gonna go there. It's kind of nice to have a little bit of freedom back. I was looking for a way to to solve this problem. I mean, I was seeing my friends in really dark places, getting drunk, you know, doing drugs, killing themselves. And uh, it was very frustrating not knowing that there was a solution out there. And I ended up making a video that went viral, kind of talking about all these things on Facebook. It was like right when they launched that live feature and um, thousands of organizations reached out to me. And the one that really stuck out said, hey man, we're 20 minutes from you. You want to meet at North Star Cafe over at Easton? I said, yeah, what do I got to lose? So I went and met them and, and shared with them everything that was going on. And you know, they asked me to go out to Malibu because that's where the cohorts were getting run at the time. This organization, Save a Warrior. And so I went out there, they asked me to go as a witness. They're like, we saw your video. We want you to come check this program out. You know, it sounds like you've been searching for this, this and that, not knowing their agenda was, hey, this guy's been through some shit. We're gonna have him come out and because he's gonna probably get some benefit out of it. And what I saw were miracles. 10 other guys were in my cohort from different branches, different time periods. And I saw 10 people that weren't, didn't wanna live anymore. Completely, the light bulbs came back on, you know, and I saw hope interjected where there was none. We're gonna take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So give us more information on the organization and maybe even how it's evolved since when you joined and why when you went out there was so what was so powerful with those 10 people? Like how exactly does Save a Warrior interact with the individuals in the cohorts and go about accomplishing what you guys do? So that program at the time was five and a half days. They were maybe doing eight, nine cohorts a year. That was a big year. A cohort is a group of about 10 to 12 people. So it's very small because you got to be able to focus attention on somebody that's in trouble. And that was really based on budgetary constraints. The nonprofit world is really tough. You want to talk about the veteran nonprofit space, the VSO, Veteran Service Organizations. There's about 44,000 in the U.S. So imagine a donor, somebody that's in the philanthropic stage in their life or a company or a small business trying to wade through that uh, especially in the midst of a scandal with some of these larger ones you may have seen on the news I won't mention names but you know they were if you if you look on the sheets online any nonprofit has to disclose their financials I think hundred thousand dollars was an incredible year and over that time period over the last six years you know I, I left my cohort astonished at what I saw happen for people in a five and a half day period enough so that for me, it was enough for me to reorient my life and say, I want to be a part of this. Because I looked at this organization, very boutique, two, three members, almost like a startup in the nonprofit space. The only There's no equity to be had, right? Because it's a nonprofit. So what, what do most people do in a startup? They'll work around the clock because there's the promise of driving their Lamborghini one day and they get their stock when it IPOs and they can sell it off or whatever they want to do with it. Not the case in the nonprofit. For me, the payoff or the the tens of thousands of people I've got a chance to touch and, and know that I've made an impact on their communities. And some would say maybe I did it wrong. I'm 38. You know, usually people jump into philanthropy when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, when they've got all their th- things in order. But for me, it was just the right time and, and it felt right, just like becoming a Green Beret. So 
jumped on the team. I said, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, started volunteering, worked my way up through any role in the company. I was a major gifts officer. I helped raise money. I was the deputy director. I ended up becoming the executive director of the organization for a couple of years. And we had a heck of a run. You know, the goal when I joined was to make Save a Warrior a forever organization. And that's a nonprofit essentially that has money and endowment, money that's in a trust. And I mean, these listeners, you guys know how money works. It it just, you got to get to a certain point and you just don't touch it. And I wanted to make sure this program, because it's so special, never went away. And we're right on the precipice of that. We are like right there six years later. Uh, Jake, myself, some really incredible board members and other people out there, we've raised almost $20 million in the last six years. And that's not easy to go out there begging for money in a very saturated space. And so- Going into the programs and how you interact, you know, what does that process look like? And what's the size of the team today? Like how, how big of a staff do you guys have that's operating this? Yep. So our staff um, varies between 12 and 15 people. Uh, that's nationwide. You know, some of the jobs are remote because imagine somebody goes on the website, they apply. So they go to www.savewarrior.org. So for anybody out here that knows someone that is maybe in trouble or, or could use a program like ours, where they can completely unplug and uh, get in touch with some of the challenges that they may have going on in their life. Save a Warrior is a great program to do that. I'll explain how it works. So we've distilled it down to 72 hours. So it was a five and a half day program. Now it's a three and a half day. 72 hour just so happens to be the time frame that somebody would be put on a hold at a psych ward. And uh, we will put our program up against any 72 hour program in this world. I promise you that. What happens is it. this is a conversation a very confrontational conversation out of ruthless compassion where somebody will submit, not apply, they'll submit, take submission through a website. Somebody will then end up having a conversation with them to make sure they're the right person to come sit in the seat. So if you're somebody that is going to come in, Mr. Know-it-all, Mr. Google, I've watched this, I've listened to this person and just run your mouth the whole time, probably not the, the right program for you because you're not going to get anything out of it. Also, probably the reason your life doesn't work because you have to be right valid and just all the time. But if you're a person that, say, that says, you know what, I've seen what WebMD said and what Harvard said and what the Mayo Clinic has said about you guys and all these other organizations, I'll give it a shot. You know, what have I got to lose? I trust the 15, 1600 other men and women from organizations all over this country, from Delta Force, from SEAL Team 6, from Green Berets, from Rangers, from Infantry, you name it, from the Marine, you know, Scout Sniper units and MARSOC and you name it. Recon, I'll trust that they've sat in the seat and had this experience and, and I'll just keep my mouth shut and um, really come in and lean into this process. And, and it's those men and women that do that that completely transform their lives. It's warrior led. So one of the things that we do is we throw out any of the preconceived notions or apprehensions that somebody may have coming in working with a therapist. We have people that have been working for therapists for 10 years and nothing against therapists. I think there's a lot of really great people that get into social work and therapy and psychology and psychiatry. But if you cured everybody, you don't have a client list anymore. That's not a tinfoil hat theory. That's just reality, you know? So unfortunately here in the U.S. and in the medical system in general, we're not in the business of curing people. We're in the business of treating people. And so, yeah, no wonder they've been in therapy for 10 years. Our goal is to get somebody in the solution space. And we don't have anything on the backside forum that they're, they're, where there's an ask. We're not saying, oh, but here's the catch. No, the catch is we want you to have a really incredible life. We want your life to explode. We want nothing from you, but everything for you. So somebody comes in, basically we uh, utilize a lot of the 12-step programs. So if you're familiar with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, founded here in Ohio, 
June 10th, 1935, by Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. Before then, there was never a cure for alcohol. Now they've been able to get groups together where um, there's, a, there's a pretty good percentage of folks that go into those programs that if they stick to the program, they complete the 12 steps. The real magic of those programs is after the 12th step. And it's not about you getting sober. It's about taking somebody else through the work and getting them sober. That's where it's at. It's about taking another man or woman through the program and getting them off narcotics. Then you get yours, you know. You're not going to get yours from going out and buying a new Porsche. You're going to get it from watching somebody transform their life. That's what we've been able to really do is instill this pay it forward methodology and mentality in somebody's life. And we, we look at things ontologically. So ontologically is like from a space of how am I being with a capital B? So are you waking up already always pissed in the morning? Are you already always cynical at the world? Like let's talk, let's have a conversation about why that's happening. So Jake, myself, a couple of our team members, if there's a leadership or transformational program out there in the world, we've attended it. Not to go in and sharpshoot it, but because we actually believe that there may be somebody out there or groups out there having a major impact. And then we've synthesized and blended some of the most powerful programs in the world into one. And so that, that's kind of craft that we have. We use psychodrama. Psychodrama is something that uh, you're taking somebody and, and putting them in the skin of the character in a film. And we're having them think about that character with a different set of lenses on. And that's a really powerful experience. A lot of people end up having these eye-opening, transformative experiences during these sessions that we have with them. So I don't want to give so much away, but just know that it's a salon-style dialogue amongst warriors. I think that's the key, is that there's not that separation. There's not, tell me how you feel. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know how you feel about that. One, one time this happened to me when I was a kid. No, hey, man, you know, our team had to carry somebody 4,000 feet down a mountain that got blown up. Hey, I had to bury my best friend. Hey, you know, so there's, there's a lot of me too's in these conversations. And, and you want to talk about stripping down walls and barriers that we build up as human beings. Most of us have acquaintances in our lives. We don't have friends that we can actually have a real conversation with that will keep us accountable. Most dudes, uh, they live in childhood psychology. They don't live in adult psychology. And that allows them to run rackets, you know? And so we get into that. We get into these tough conversations. We have a lot of veterans that come that are 50, 60, and uh, it's pretty painful pill to swallow when they look in the mirror and they realize, man, I've been acting like a child in my life. That's a tough one. And how do you know if Save a Warrior is right for you? If you're white-knuckling life right now and you have thoughts of taking your life or you wake up and you don't feel a need to exist, we're probably the right program for you. And unfortunately, that's a good portion of not just the population that we work with coming from these combat units and coming from the military and first responders. That's a, that's a lot of the population just in general in this country. And one thing that we discovered at Save a Warrior is we started using CDC data from the ACE surveys. You guys ever heard of that? ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. It's a 10-part questionnaire. And anytime prior to your 18th birthday did XYZ happen? Was there an alcoholic in the house? Did, was somebody mentally ill? Did somebody attempt suicide or commit suicide? Did somebody um, fondle you or touch you or have intercourse with you or attempt to that was five years older than you? And these questions go on. But they're always the same 10 questions. And Kaiser Permanente funded this study in the 90s. And they were able to gauge what was your chance of attempting suicide based on your score. And what they found out was, is once you hit a four you're 10 times more likely. So if you answered yes on four to attempt it at your life, once you hit a six, you're 50 times more likely. And it just goes up exponentially from there. The average score in the general population is about a two. So people, somebody will have an alcoholic in the family, right? I bet our listeners out there can say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, somebody 
maybe there was a violent incident that happened in my house as a kid, you name it. The average score of the participant that comes to our program is a six. Some of our cohorts are eights on average, eights. So yeah, you want to talk about um, having trauma before you even join the military. You know, a lot of people think it's all about what happened over there. And no, it's it's really about what was happening with the brain. Because again, we're really into neurology and neurobiology when the brain was forming and how the trauma hits the brain on an ontological level and a subcortical level as a kid. So noting that, you know, a lot of the people you guys talk with have those experiences as children. Do you think that there's a correlation there that people who have traumatic experiences as a child tend to gravitate towards an organization like, like the military? Of course. Yeah. I mean, they're looking to get initiated into adult psychology and they think that by joining the military and going through boot camp or basic training that they're going to get initiated or the police academy or the fire academy. But all they're getting is a pseudo initiation. Just because you've gone through a tough experience does not initiate you into a man. Just because you've been in combat does not make you a man. I can't tell you how many guys I know that have been to combat, but you know, they're addicted to porn and they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and they're addicted to video games and they're just running around like young boys, but they're 40. You know what I mean? And so that's, but then they don't want, they wonder why their lives don't work. And it comes down to this, you know, the difference between a boy and a man. And I speak all over this country. I do, I'll do keynotes for small groups. I'll do them for as large as a stadium and I'll hop down with my microphone. I'll ask people questions. I like to make people feel uncomfortable. I like to really just get into the realness of a conversation. And I'll ask, hey, what's the difference between a boy and a man? And a lot of women, I'll hear, you know, funny remarks, biological remarks, you name it. People got jokes, but we have it down to this. The difference between a boy and a man is that men do shit they don't want to do because it's the right thing to do, period. A boy will, will go off and watch his porn in the bathroom and complain about his relationship or wonder why his relationship doesn't work. He'll go play video games instead of, you know, tending to the responsibilities in his home. He'll stop off at the bar and, and knock a couple off with some whiskey because he doesn't want to go home or I'll sit in his car in the parking lot to avoid his, his life that he has to, to walk into. Or he'll keep men, really boys, in his life so that he can keep running these rackets and circles as opposed to having an accountable man or men in his life that um, are there to call him on his BS. And that's, that's where we make the real transformation and it takes time. We serve men and women. It's a different program for women than men. And we have some powerful trainers in that space as well. And we serve 25% women, we serve 75% men. So we go above and beyond for women. It's, it's actually around 18 to 21% of women serve in the military and in the first responders force. So we're, we're serving a few percentage points higher because we just want to make sure because there's a lack of programs out there for women to come and have this experience. And, you know, unfortunately, military sexual trauma and just sexual trauma on the job is an unfortunate um, part of being in the military. So much that one out of three will suffer from that. And that's a disgusting figure, if you ask me. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. 
from what I'm taking from what you're saying, a lot of this is uh, it's an internal dialogue and something that starts inside of you and your your mental state of mind on your your life and your position in life. But how much falls back to camaraderie and like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Sebastian Younger's book Tribe, but he studied elite forces and. I got to imagine that leaving that and being a part of something that's so meaningful and surrounded by such high level individuals and then going back into a regular society has got to be an extremely challenging thing. Do you find that as a large part of the struggle? Yeah, that is a large part. I think one of the big parts of the struggle is that those incompletions from childhood. So getting complete with somebody is accepting them for who they are and who they are not. You know, and a lot of people are incomplete, unfortunately, with what happened throughout childhood. But yeah, there's also a an aspect where, you know, younger, he basically poses that he poses it's, uh, we're all wired for struggle and connection, you know, and, and he talks about those in uh, the Balkans during the war and how, you know, they were never closer together than when the war was going on, whether it be, uh, you know, doctors and a homeless man. But as soon as the war ceased to exist, they went back to isolating and being disconnected. And that's also part of the struggle of being a man because a boy will do what a boy wants to do. And men do things they don't want to do because it's the right thing to do. So that's part of that daily struggle that we get people back connected to. Not to hate their life, but to actually really take pride in their life. And to, to know, hey, you know what? I'm setting a great example for, you know, not only the men and women that I serve with, but my family, because it starts really at the household. And that's a lot of the work that we do with companies, academia, first responder agencies. It's got to start at home. And you have to know that when you're walking into the workplace that you're, you're an authentic person and you're living an authentic life because those inauthenticities, they, they catch up with you. After a while, you can only fake it so long. Then transitioning to Western Zen, give us background on, on what that's all about and how it came about. Yeah. So again, I mentioned speaking, you know, Jake and I, uh, and, and this work that we do with Save a Warrior, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our donors as a nonprofit to fulfill the mission that we have on our statement, which is serving veterans and first responders. So whenever somebody donates money, like that's our priority in the mission, but we, I can't tell you how many schools have come up. Like, did you guys know that the number one cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds in the state of Ohio is suicide? And I bet that's probably the case in most states around the country. So, you know, we have folks from different school districts. We have folks from academia with everything that's going on in the college space. We have companies that are dealing with this transition to remote workers and transition to downsizing and AI coming in. And there's all of these different challenging horizons and challenging situations that they're asking, hey, can we utilize some of this technology, some of this training you guys are do? And can you guys custom tailor something for our organization to, to really make an impact? You know, and meditation's probably the foundation of what we do at Save a Warrior. And I didn't even get into that, you know, but that's, that's part of what we do is getting people to slow down and get in touch with their breath. Because what's the first thing we do when we're born? When we come out of that womb, we breathe. And we just take that for granted as if we know how to breathe. But what do we know about breathing? If you guys have read the book by James Nestor, New York Times bestseller, guy who studied free divers, like how does somebody that doesn't have any experience end up becoming a free driver that can hold their breath 12 minutes? So then he goes down this pattern of well, what does it mean to actually breathe? And in this book, he, he basically talks about um, working with scientists and, and it's all science backed. I mean, the sourcing on this is incredible. This is where we pull a lot of our material, but most people don't even know how to breathe. And Apple tells us if you have the watch, it's five seconds in, five seconds out. There's a little dial and it'll tell you how to breathe. And you breathe in through the nose, out through the nose. And this is why mouth breathers, people that traditionally breathe with their mouth and people laugh, hey, don't be a mouth breather, it actually changes the structure of your face. This is why we have teeth problems in this country too. So we get people to slow down to learn how to breathe, maybe for the first time in their life. And a lot of the situations that seem very, very stressful end up, you know, rolling right off the back. And you have people that can come up against really tough situations. And ultimately, 
you get people to work more effectively together, communicate more effectively together, and the right people will stick around. And certain businesses, certain jobs aren't for everybody, but you want people that are all rowing in the same direction if you're running a company. So as you look to the future, both with the Western Zen and with Save a Warrior, what do you see for yourself? What do you see for those two organizations? Yeah, so for Save a Warrior, like I mentioned, we we are on the precipice of um, becoming this forever organization. And that doesn't mean we don't need help. You know, we are a nonprofit. We are not some of these legacy veteran service organizations that have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. But we are working tirelessly to develop an endowment. Um, and we have some great relationship with, with, with corporations right here in the city. Really great. You know, Discover is one of our, our biggest supporters here in Columbus. Um, AEP is a great supporter of ours. Uh, we have some really good relationships with a lot of different firms. But we want to become forever. We want to know that something like this is out there for generations to come, for, for veterans and first responders that need this experience and that ultimately can go back into their families and become better parents and better you know, employees wherever they're at and leave a, a legacy for themselves versus becoming a statistic like you see on the news. And for the Western Zen, I mean, we want to be able to take the best of what we've created with Save a Warrior and move that into a corporate space, move that into an academic space and make a valuable impact for companies and not just be some boilerplate material where we come in with a book and have a cool acronym and everybody gets fired up for an hour. No, we're looking to make lasting impact in an organization on every level. And what about for yourself? Mm, that's a great question. For myself, I just want to know that I laid it all on the line. And for me, that's enough. And I feel like this far in my life at 38, you know, my whole life has been about service. I don't know what the future holds five years from now, 10 years from now, but I know that whatever I do, I'm, I'm going in 100%. And that's just always been my motto. And um, that's where I find value is, is knowing I put it all out there. Adam, I think that's a good place to head towards our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which you hinted at earlier, but it is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Love that question. So that reminds me of a film called Eight Mile, which I was very fond of as a young man. And it actually came out when I was in college. But there's a last verse and, you know, spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't seen the film that plans to, but it's one of those hidden treasures probably on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something right now. But Eminem, this is kind of loosely based about, you know, his life coming up, but he's stuck. And he gets up on stage and, and it's kind of a metaphor for life, right? There's a lot of us out there feeling stuck that may be stuck in our career, stuck in our marriage, you know, stuck wherever saying, man, is this all it is? And so for M, you know, great lyricist, likes to have fun, clearly a passion, but very stuck. And he just keeps continually getting shredded on stage in these, these rap battles. And so what does he do is he comes out completely authentic, not trying to be anybody else, just completely himself and lays it all on the line in the most vulnerable fashion ever. And what does he do? He disses himself for like three minutes. He tells the whole audience in the club the most embarrassing things about himself. Comes from a trailer park, his girlfriend's cheating on him, you name it. And he hands the mic over to the other guy when he gets done and it's just crickets because the guy has nothing to say. And so that's really part about being living uncomfortably is being yourself. And we live in this era with, with filters and everybody's trying to be somebody that they're not, it seems like, in, in an online capacity. And it's kind of refreshing to see somebody just come out and be themselves. And it's something that I take with myself every time I speak is I'll have them read the most obnoxious bitch in bio ever. And then I come off the stage in a microphone. I, I share the most intimate, 
vulnerable details about myself. And I look around at the audience and I have instant connection because they're like, oh, this, is, this guy's not some salesman. He's actually here to connect with me. I, I think I better lean in and listen to this. So if you're out there listening right now, I can tell you what, you know, that it's been a wild ride for me, but my life has exploded in so many different ways. Most importantly, with my relationships with my family and um, in my community, but it has exploded in tremendous ways the minute I started being vulnerable. Adam, that's a great answer and uh, appreciate your time so much today. It's been great talking with you, learning a little more about Save a Warrior and the Western Zen. So thanks so much for joining us, telling your story. Thank you. Yeah, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that episode, leave a like. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. It really does help support our show. And you'll get interviews just like this one every week on Mondays. So thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.